Hi, y'all. Welcome back to Peachy Keen. I'm Vivian Liddell, and this is my podcast. For this, the fifth episode, I'll be talking with Atlanta artist, curator, and educator Candace Greathouse about all three of those roles. So Candace's studio is on the south side of the city, and it's in a very non-assuming looking warehouse. It does not look like a gentrified art center. It's got loading docks that are still operational and there's, you know, like trucks hanging around and when you get but when you get inside, it is suddenly art land in there. It actually reminds me of East Williamsburg uh, when I lived there around 2005-ish, I think. Um, I lived in a loft off Messerol Street there that was uh, some madness, a big space that had been carved up. So there was, I don't know, I mean, I think like five people living there and untold numbers of cats. There was band practice happening all the time. It was it was that kind of scenario. But yeah, so Candace's loft is not a, doesn't appear to be like a living space, but it is that kind of giant warehouse that has been carved up into smaller spaces thing so when you it's but but this warehouse in Atlanta it puts the East Williamsburg warehouse that I was in to shame in terms of scale it was it's a really big place um when we walked in we were greeted by this mannequin so the mannequin was uh, it scared me when we walked in. Kind of looked like I, maybe it was supposed to guarding the entrance, and you know you can kind of look around and see on the horizon there was a big open space with a lot of stuff in it. I would have liked to have walked around and gotten real nosy and up in everybody's business, but there were people working and I didn't I didn't want to ask for a tour. But there looked like there was a combination of hangout. Um, areas, studio areas, works in progress. It was pretty stimulating environment, pretty exciting. You know, like lots of weird artists, half projects, old furniture, that kind of stuff. And Candace's studio was a white cube within all this crazy space. So you like open a door and you go walk into her studio. The walls of her studio don't go all the way up to the ceiling. So you can hear everything like, uh, when we got there, Bennett went to pee while we were setting up. And so it was this fun, awkward moment where Candace and I could totally hear him like we were in the bathroom with him. And she was telling me that she really feels like she gets to know her studio neighbors because of that. So we sat down in her very organized, tidy, kind of white, cubish space with some LaCroix. Which, by the way, I just looked up because this is a thing that that haunts me. I love this this sparkling water, and I'm always I usually pronounce it Lacroix, like I'm trying to get French on it. But I just looked it up for the purpose of the podcast because I here I am. I'm like pronouncing stuff for you guys. I don't want to put that out. And it is Lacroix. The website says, you know, damn the French. It's not the French pronunciation. It rhymes with boy. So I'm glad I could clear that up for you guys. When next time you're having a LaCroix, you can confidently state, give me one of those LaCroix, please. So anyway, Candace and I, um, we've met in passing before, and we started our conversation trying to work that out. 
that, yeah, that was in 2015, 2015. And I'd been with them for maybe a little under a year then. That was our, the first major exhibition. Yeah, so that was the that was when I have met you. Okay. I was in I, that show. It's awesome. been a long time. It has. Good. I knew because I was like, <laughs> what is it from? And then I couldn't look it up. Um, I was like, sometimes I think I'll figure it out. But I thought it was one of those big shows. Oh, you recognize my name. Yes. 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 Um, that's what it was. But I didn't have too much interaction with you. Okay. Like, I think I came and I installed with, like, an intern or something. Um, so I didn't. I didn't see you very much. I wouldn't expect you to remember me. I, was only, <laughs> I, I think I only talked to you for like five minutes, like hi, I'm Vivian, here's my work, and then left, you know. Well, I, I'm one of these people that it's, um, especially as like a curator and an artist and a pretty social person, um, I can never, I always remember meeting people, but I can never remember in what context or capacity. I'm like racking my brains. Um, but so, no, yeah, this is awesome. This is really great. Yeah, so I, I have that issue, too. And I, I used to live in New York, and I found it a lot easier because you usually only see people in one context. Like, right. you have these people that you only see at this gallery or you only see in a work environment. But now I live in Athens, and you see the same people in, like, four or five different contexts, and I have a really hard time remembering who's who. Like, wait, do, does my son go to school with your son? Or do you work with my husband? Or are you an artist? Like... How do I know you? I can't keep people. Athens is good, though, because it, it's, I feel like the art community there, you see, it's, it's pretty large for Athens, for Athens being so small, I yeah. think. But I see everyone everywhere. That is true. I mean, I kind of, I've been in and out of Athens so much that I try to avoid the smallness of Athens because it gets too small if you live there. You know, have you lived there before? I've never lived there before. My uh, husband lived there for, he did undergrad there. But that was 15 years ago or something. Is Curtis your husband? Yes. So he's your work partner, too. So, yeah, we kind of collaborate with everything. That's fun. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> and so I know you, you teach at Georgia State, right? Yes. And you went to Georgia State for your master's, two master's. I have two masters also. <laughs> I, I received my MFA uh, in photography in 2012, and then I decided to stay on and do my art history masters as well, and so I finished in 2014. So I have to get five years of graduate school. And so, why not a doctorate? Well, I've I've, I've been on the fence about it, um, okay. but it was it was ironic because I love school. Um, there's something really safe about school. Yeah. And somewhere in the middle of my um, MFA, I realized that I had never been out of school since I was five years old. <laughs> yeah. um, I went to like high school, you know, then I went to college. It took a couple, I took, I finished closer to six years. Where did you go undergrad? So undergrad, I went to uh, Florida State University. I kind of floated onto a few different schools. Um, I started in Columbus, Georgia, and then I spent a few years at Florida State University in Tallahassee, and then I finished in Birmingham at the University of Alabama. Okay, so that is a trajectory, and I noticed, like, I didn't see your undergrad thing anywhere online, and I was wondering if you had, because I bounced around to a couple of schools, so how long were you actually at Florida State? Two and a half years. Okay, two and a half years, and are you from South Georgia? I'm from Columbus, Georgia. Oh, So I'm really, it's, um, it's, it's interesting. I've stayed in this like southeastern triangle, like <laughs> Georgia, Florida, Alabama, for my entire life. I went to high school in Albany. Okay, so yeah. So I grew up in South Georgia. Um, I'm always interested in people who have come from there. My mom was born in Fort Benning. What year did you graduate from high school? 
2003. Okay. So how was it there? Comus is good. Uh, it's small. <laughs> it's, it's thriving. I think, you know, it's, it's, it's so close to Fort Benning. And then Phoenix City, Alabama, too, that it kind of, it seems larger than maybe it is. And you mm -hmm. have a lot of influx of new people. Um, we were not there for any military reason. I'm not, we just kind of got situated there. Uh, and my family is Filipino. And there's actually a really heavy Filipino population in Columbus, Georgia, hmm. which is something that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, and I, I wasn't really raised heavily Filipino because I'm only a quarter, but since I haven't had that in my family. So I spent a lot of time with my family when I was growing up, but I was eager to get out of Columbus the minute I could. <laughs> so your parents, um, are your parents together and they... No, no, parents are not together. Um, my father lives in South Florida. Um, okay. But my mom's still in Columbus. And so they were apart when you were growing up and you were with your mom in Columbus? Or? Yes. And then I'd spend my vacations, all the vacations um, in, with my father in Florida, in, like, around Orlando. So I guess that's more central Florida, actually. Um, whenever I'm driving down there, I feel like it's South Florida because it just takes an eternity. <laughs> yeah. And do you have any siblings? There? I have a younger brother who's still in Columbus and he's um, like the a thriving entrepreneur mm -hmm. uh he has a restaurant and a craft beer store and cool. he's like the kind of uh, cool guy in columbus georgia because <laughs> there's only room for just a few of them <laughs> so did you know when you were a little person in columbus that you were going to be an artist like what made I, you go to art school i, I did so um <laughs> we my uh my father had a brother and his mom, my uh, maternal, my paternal grandmother, her name was Patricia, was always involved in the arts, and she was a teacher. And she never had a daughter, um, and her boys weren't interested in art. So when I was born, it was this really big deal, and she wanted to take care of me and like do everything for me. And she put me in art classes from a very, very young age. And so I tried like ceramics, painting, everything, and I hated it. <laughs> I was very frustrated. Like all of my free time, I had to go to art classes and do all these things, uh, which. Looking back, I mean, I was so fortunate. Yeah, I would have killed for that. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, and um, so I just, she always wanted me to be an artist. And that was always, like, I just knew I was. And I always took, like, the art classes and the AP classes. And I knew when I was going to school I would be an artist. And, like, that was just, like, what was laid out in my life for me. Um, but I also really rebelled against, like, traditional styles of art. Um, like, I'm not a painter. I'm not very interested in painting. Mm -hmm. Um which that sounds awful, but like um, I'm more interested in like con like conceptual types of work. It's the idea behind it, and if the idea is translated through painting and that kind of thing, and um, or if it needs to be better translated through sculpture or something like that, it's just the idea of like painting for painting's sake. Right. I think which um, a lot of people I think um, are into, and I'm a painter. I know. I'm like <laughs> no. I mean, I'm I not. <clears throat> I'm not in any way insulted because I'm definitely more into concept myself like I'm not well I do get really uh you know what wonky on it like I do painting for the sake of painting does interest me um but so you're I just got sidetracked thinking about painting well so, though I do want to say like painting is such a cathartic experience I mean it's, I really really enjoy it when I do it occasionally and whenever I see someone do it I'm so entranced by the process I think also like coming from this background, I always rebelled against like having to do painting in my childhood. I mean, I took probably 10 years of painting classes 
Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, I, so <laughs> this this podcast, I'm focused on women in the South. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in kind of regional, if there is even any kind of regional differences in the art world right now. And, I, you know, I talk about this a lot with different people. I feel like painting is the gold standard still in the South for art. People expect you to be good at painting and naturalism if you're an artist, like not in the art world, but like at large, would you agree with that? I wholeheartedly agree. Um, I mean, it's interesting thinking about um, just, let's say Georgia State, for example, their arts program. It's like the building's five floors, um, drawing and painting is on the top floor. Yeah, (laughs) very (laughs) little. (laughs) Ceramics is on the bottom. Sculpture's been kicked off, you know, it's a mile or away. Uh, so, in championing art, there's always this like, oh, you're a painter. And I think Atlanta especially has this really great respect um, and tradition of championing painting, which is, I think, fantastic. We have so many incredible painters coming out of Atlanta. But I've heard a lot of painters from Atlanta and from Athens say that they don't feel that way. And I mean, I think that's true in terms of the general public. But in the art world, what I, the vibe I'm getting is a lot of people kind of see Atlanta as a performance and film town. I don't know. I mean, I think you're right that there's a lot of great painting happening. I mean, it's really exciting, like thinking about some of the stuff that's at Hathaway Gallery. Sandler Hudson is, I feel like, not so much lately. A lot of the commercial spaces. Marsha Wood has amazing, like shows right. frequently amazing paintings all the time. Um, especially these like kind of more gestural, abstracted paintings, mm-hmm. um, we see a huge kind of influx of them. So that those commercial galleries in Atlanta, a lot of that has some kind of overlap with interior design. You know, where you have I, I often wonder like people in Atlanta that have money that are buying art, how much of it is kind of a decorative. I mean, you were, we worked in galleries. Well, it's hard to, I think, escape that because ultimately everyone wants to put a piece of work above their couch and they want, um, and we're not dealing with the kind of collectors in Atlanta most of the time that have these warehouses where they can store work. And that's actually the great thing about Atlanta is people are buying works they really, really enjoy and they want to spend time with every single day. And it's not necessarily New York where they're buying them and then they're selling them later on and it's just this process. So people are really cultivating relationships with the work that they're interested in and the Mm -hmm. artist especially. You know, we'll have people who are just avidly following a lot of the Atlanta artists. But then, uh, I, I've never sure, I've never curated a painting show, ever. <laughs> so maybe, and I, I just realized that earlier this year because I'm I'm putting one together right now. I'm like working mm-hmm. on one that I'll be proposing, um, which is pulling Athens and Atlanta artists together, which has sort of been my thing for the last maybe six months. It's, I mean, there's a lot of crossover, you know, I, I show, and I'm going to be in that show, the Mint show at the Hathaway tonight. Oh yeah, that's tonight. That's awesome. So So you're in, oh, okay. Sidetrack, but that's so cool because you were like in one a few years ago and then you're in this one. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. That's, this is the first one I've been in. Um, and I have, I have a solo show coming up at iDrum. And so I almost didn't enter it because it's right, like my solo show Mm -hmm. is in July and I thought, well, Will it detract? But I love the Hathaway Gallery. It's wonderful. 
it's so beautiful. Just the thought of my work being in that space. I was like, okay, I'm applying, you know. And having the reflections bounce off the floor. So shiny. That's like the ultimate photograph. Yes. Yes. (laughs) They have the shiniest floors in Atlanta. It's so funny. Um, My good friend, Ann Weems, is the gallery manager there. And I know Hathaway very well. And that space is so amazing. Literally anything will look perfect there. One time I dug through their fridge and I pulled out like a sack of limes. (laughs) And I just like placed it on the wall and photographed it. Um, Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> it is a beautiful space. I can't wait for the opening tonight. Um, yeah, I think I'm ever going to stop by also. I haven't been um, – I transitioned out of men a few months ago to focus on more uh, – like getting outside of Atlanta and focusing more on my own studio practice as well because as a curator and a visual artist, um, I felt sort of like curating had kind of eclipsed my personal practice. Yeah. And that's always a struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, so really trying to rededicate myself to that, but I can't seem to stop curating either. I want to create relationships, you know, show Atlanta artists elsewhere, other artists here, but ones that are still kind of travelable. Right. You know, I mean, I think like Daniel Fuller is a great example of like bringing a lot of artists from New York and elsewhere to Atlanta. And I don't think that my trajectory is, is that far at all, but maybe staying inside the Southeast. Right. Burnaway has been so helpful to kind of give a, a Southeast identity to the arts. I think it's their coverage outside of Atlanta is really phenomenal. Yeah. And I keep telling people Athens is like an hour and 20 minutes away. Yeah, it's, it's surprising so to me because a lot of people don't make that trek. I mean, this is the second time I've been to Atlanta in like two weeks. I come all the time. It's actually I, perfect for a little day trip. I, yeah, yeah, I love doing that. So I go, I'm going to go look at art. In between this and the openings tonight, probably go to the high and maybe okay. the contemporary. But you know, <clears throat> I don't. I don't understand people who don't make that hour drive. I have this like <laughs> funny little thing that I always tell people to. I'm like, you should go to Athens and see the shows that are up. Literally, if you go to Athens for the day, you're actually saving money. <laughs> it's so it's cheaper to eat really good food there and have drinks. <laughs> the food in Athens cannot be beat. Oh my goodness! It's I mean, wonderful. I went I went to New York in February for the College Art Association conference, mm-hmm. and I was just so disappointed in all the food because I got I've gotten really spoiled in Athens. Like the food is top notch and it's so cheap. It's so well priced. Yeah, and five dollar cocktails. Yeah, like everywhere you can't beat. They're it. like twelve dollars in Atlanta. Yeah, it is. You really, you're correct. You do save money. I mean, that's the main reason why we live in Athens. I really think that should be like Athens slogan. <laughs> like, drive here for the day, you'll save money. It's true. Once I started doing photography, it was just like, oh, this is it. Um, I think that I a lot of my work and interests are within like, the, the real world versus the imagined world, at least the imagined world that I could create. Uh, so capturing some sort of reality. And I, I really, I started with like a kind of documentary background. Like an undergrad, I photographed single parents. Mm-hmm. That was the work that got me into graduate school. And I was really excited to work with Nancy Floyd here because her Women with Guns series and a lot of like her work dealing with, with like representational uh, figures in the realm of photography, um, and it just, it always, it had been what would clicked. Also, probably I wasn't force-fed photography lessons at all in my youth, so 
It was like my like subtle way of rebelling. Like, oh, I'll do photography. It's so you're fresh. like a um, an equipment wonk. Do you like get really into what kind of cameras you have? And I'm so the opposite. I can't stand like contrived situations. I don't do lighting. I don't do. Um, I do have a few cameras. It's hard not to collect cameras. You know, I've got like the need like the prerequisite medium format film. I've got you know 17 35 millimeters. Um, got like a, a nice digital camera. Um, but you know, everyone says this now and it's sort of, but I use my iPhone all the time Yeah, it's on me. <laughs> and you know, the iPhone takes pretty good pictures. It I takes mean. great pictures, but I really, in my current practice, I don't use traditional photography. I use, I use lensless photography. Mm-hmm. So I'm using the scanner. Okay. I'm using a scanner to make mo- most of my works. What kind of things are you scanning in here? It's hard to describe on the podcast. So, um, I start there's this whole kind of trajectory where I started like photographing single parents, um, which were predominantly single mothers, of course. And then thinking about kind of feeling fairly like exploitive thinking and and subjective and what really I was wanting to do. I turned the lens on myself and started documenting my like lived experiences and thinking about family archives and sentimentality and nostalgia and domesticity and how those are so intertwined with like the female experience. Um, either as a positive or problematic, depending on who's saying it and how they're describing it. Right. But it just felt so literal after a point. Like, I made my point. You could see it in the image. You knew what it was about. And I thought there was a few more, like, nebulous kind of things I was really wanting to say, like the the nuances of these experiences. So I started kind of collecting memorabilia and, like, scrap objects and just kind of things around the house, around the home, um, things that my son had or that I had that were – very important sentimental, but completely, like, trash. Something no one cares about. You know, like, infused with some sort of memory. Right. It's, like, intensely personal. And figuring out how that translates into an image. Um, because foot photography is what I felt comfortable with. So I started scanning all these, like, objects. And um, my son had this... Every year he goes with his grandparents to uh, this festival... And it's like hot dogs and cotton candy and balloon animals. And he, um, I, I'm like very interested in unicorns. I mm-hmm. have been for a long time. Like they're, you know, they're magical. How can you not? Right. Um, and, but that's, and that's, I think there's something ironic about how like little girls are given unicorns. Like my father is giving unicorn pictures mm-hmm. and unicorn books and unicorn toys, but, um, unicorns like they're male and they've got this horn and they want to find the young virgin, right? right. Only the young virgin can tame them. There's yes. something so ironic about that yeah. um, and kind of creepy. So, <laughs> but I, I still, you know, so I just kind of feel compelled to, to, to like, anything that's a unicorn. So he had a unicorn made of a balloon animal and I thought it was amazing and I tried to photograph it and it wouldn't work. And then I, I started scanning it because I had a scanner and I would scan negatives. Right. And I started scanning all those objects and then I started scanning the balloon animal. So it's this really beautiful image um, of like a white neutral background and the kind of deflating unicorn. And you can't really tell what it is, but then you kind of can. Uh, and then the next year he got me another one. And then we're working, I think this is the fourth year. And it's this really sweet little moment. Um, but looking at the way that pressure is captured on a scan is inherently so fascinating yeah um seeing that uh, there's something so bodily about it uh, like Anna Mendieta's um pieces where she pressed her body against plexiglass or glass right really seeing that tension um someone attributed to like 
watching someone like like try on a pair of jeans that are a little too tight. <laughs> yeah. Like, and you can see like your body's trying to escape wherever it possibly can. Uh, and it really it, so it struck a chord with me. And so the unicorns becoming this. They're well, trying. Oh, at no. least the balloon. The, the balloon. But the balloon. And then I started thinking about all the balloons that we have all the time for different events, and I started saving them and scanning them. And then, it, and it really became this obsession. It's like a catalog, and it's interesting because um, you're the first person that I've talked to that is a mother. Um, I have two boys, also, <clears throat> and I'm. And so clearly, your son has had a direct impact on your artistic practice. Um, I think that's something that's really interesting. Do you find a lot of parents working in the art world in Atlanta or? Yes and no. Um, I think, well, I come from, I studied women's studies in, in grad school, which is, I think it was now it's now gender and sexuality studies. Right. right? Um, but I took a lot of classes on like feminist art history and I'm hugely interested in this, like, Carolee Schneeman, uh, Mary Kelly, whose postpartum document, I, I think, changed the course of my career. You know, I cannot, I checked it out from the library, and it would, it's, like, they were due every six months, and I would just renew it. I had it, like, for the whole three so years. So how did that, how, how did that directly impact your career? Because it, it just made me think about um, ways to objectively, to critically look at concepts such as sentimentality. Mm-hmm. which is something I've been sort of working on without really realizing it. Right. And I think that that binary of like subjective and objective is really important with dealing with sentimental kind of concepts because it, there, it's this lens that allows you, it allows it to become a little more universal. Right. And that's actually why I use lensless photography because it's completely objective. At least I'm not, I don't know what's going to happen. I put it in there and it comes out. It's also similar to like the magic of a dark room. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of experiencing that. It's uh, creating kind of the work for me. Right. It's a little bit detached. Right. And I think that that, for my process at least, that's really important. Interesting. But I guess to go back to your question, I mean, there, there's definitely parents in the art world in Atlanta. Um, it, I don't know how many. And I don't know how many are making work that is related to it. Uh, and it's a slippery slope for women to say, like, their work is inspired. Like, Coming out of that, I mean, right away, you know, people are going to discount you. Absolutely. Well, I yeah, that's one reason I wanted to explicitly talk about it. Clearly, being a parent is very difficult when you're an artist because you have, or it is to me, I think unless you have a lot of, you know, resources, because art is often done outside of another job already. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have like your day job until you get to be making money off your art and then you're making your art on the, you know, on the side or, you know, you have to doggedly pursue it for a long period of time. And then when you add being a parent on top of that, it's like having three full-time jobs. So I feel like it's more difficult because, you know, if you look at different career paths and women in different fields, the arts is definitely a field where women are not reaching the upper echelons of the art world, you know, like, do you know what I'm saying like, I do I do I do I know I think Atlanta is sort of the exception if you think about all of everything that's being run right now think about Burnway think about oh, yeah. ATL, think women. about Marsha Wood think about um the contemporary I mean Veronica is the exact even though Daniel's like here I mean everything's women right it's pretty incredible it is pretty incredible um I mean I'm like think about so many of the nonprofits, like from Mint to Dashboard 
that um, to uh, not iDrum but uh, Murmur that were, are run by women. But I wonder. I'm always worried that that's. <laughs> I always look for the negative and everything. But I think it was Mira Shore that I was reading who was talking about like this. What does that say about? Does that say something about art as a career? Here, like, is it? You know, all of my students are women, and I'm wondering. You know why? I mean, it's weird to have only just women mm-hmm. in your art classes, and that's—I don't know how it is at Georgia State, but I have like very few men in my classes. So. I think that I'm think, trying to think statistics-wise, and I believe it's a few years old, and I can't place it. But the the MFA students, or, or even a lot of universities, like female students, are there's a heavier majority of female students than male students. In overall. Overall. Right. So maybe in, in all. I think that, I'm trying to think in my experience, I feel like mine have been, my classes have been pretty split, but Atlanta as well, so it might be a little yeah, bit Yeah, it's different. different in North Georgia. Because my my worry is is that not, and I think this is what I read in Mirror Shore, or I'm trying to remember who it was, I can't remember, that it's not that women have advanced, but it's that maybe the art is, art fields aren't seen as important, you know. I don't know. I read that, and that kind of was unnerving. But I wonder if that's the case. Like, you know, I know when I was growing up, there was definitely a gender, a perception that being an artist was not a manly thing to do. Um, I'm older than you. But definitely there was a perception that it was kind of a a more of a hobbyist career. And if you wanted to make money and support your family, that's not a field that you would go into. Um, right. Well, and women were traditionally trained in the arts. That was their only education because women would be able to like dance and sing and right. make, make, make some work. Not for selling, of course. But to be a good, better wife. Right, right. <laughs> yes. So I'm, I'm, you know, while I'm excited that it's all women in the art world, I'm also like, why is it all women in the art world? Um, Whenever there's some a gender, you know, one way or the other, there's a big gender division. I'm always curious about why that's happening. I think that that's a good question. Um, but, yeah, I, I guess it's something I don't, I don't have the answer for. No. But I think Atlanta is really in a great spot right now because of all of these women. But if you look at it, like, nationally, um, you know, Mary's the Mary Boone Gallery in New York. There's so many. There's a lot of women run ones, but there's just as many men run ones. So right. I think Atlanta's a nice little exception currently. Um, but then if we look at like art sales, you know, all of like the top ten selling female artists and like for art auctions and art markets, like add up to like half of what David right. Hurst or the male artists, that kind of thing. And that's what I meant by women not reaching the upper tiers. So of it's the like art world. we might be well known, but our works will still sell for, and it's not even 70, like we're not getting 70%, 70 cents on the dollar for this. It's, it's, we're talking about millions of dollars, which is hundreds of thousands. Right. So, um, and I don't really know what the solution is for that. Or we yeah. should start selling our work for a million dollars. That's a great solution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. These are things that I think about a lot. And I, you know, I still notice this difference. And it's just something that I like to see what other people think about it. And I know that you um, did in, study feminist studies and mm-hmm. performance. Um, it's funny because I, I made one of my students blush, a, a, a guy, he was like, I, you know, he asked me about the podcast and who I was going to be interviewing soon. And I told him you, and I, I told him you were into performance and feminist studies. 
So we were probably just going to sit around and talk about pulling scrolls out of our vaginas. Oh, my gosh. And he Are just we at that part of right. the interview yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're, now we're here. Perfect. And he, uh, he just turned bright red at that. But, you know, I, I would like to hear – so you specifically studied performance, and you're kind of working photography into your work. Um, and you've mentioned before, do you do performance so art? I've done some performance work, um, in graduate school. I, I think that some of my work is performative, but I haven't done performance since like that second year of my MFA where I was like going kind of crazy and <laughs> trying everything new. Um, I have a few, I have some interesting work, um, if we're going to talk about interior scroll, it mm-hmm. seems relevant. Um, you know, I've got this really great vid- uh, blood piece. It's a video where I've, uh, it's actually fake blood. It's like a couple, like a gallon of it, you know, where I'm like perched in an all white bathroom and you see this like hemorrhaging out this like tidal wave of, wave of blood. Very, like, kind of like the shining, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> it's like 10 minutes of just watching like blood come out, like, you know, thinking about expectations of, how, you know, what menstrual blood is. like what is it like how much is there really mm-hmm. is there this infinite supply right. <laughs> <laughs> are we just like all out of us walking around with no blood in our bodies it's like all like in our underwear like when we're going through a period and different works where I would scan like, menstrual blood as well mm-hmm. I think my work is a little a lot of that stuff is really loaded and again I'm looking for kind of the subtleties and nuances right. of experience so I'm not making work like that right now, but I think it was really important to kind of getting to where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess going, well, going back to your question, sort of, or, or when we were talking about like mothers in Atlanta art world and or having like multiple full time jobs too. A lot of my work, you know, I'm scanning. I'm not out shooting, right? You know, so it, I kind of am doing it where I can't, I can make it, right? You know, and I have so I have a son and he's ten, and I also have two stepsons who are. 13 and six so and they're all boys so I'm like very like in the life um as a parent but and and my husband is as well absolutely so trying to incorporate everything having everything kind of be to it and that's like I think why we collaborate as well because that's and we collaborate with our kids like if we you're with them like let's make it work Mm -hmm. so they'll, they'll very often find like balloons or scraps of things and different kinds of objects um like playground balls and they will like give them to us to add to our collection. They're like, oh, I made this really interesting piece. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, that's really good. Well, I have <laughs> the same the same age range. I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old boy. Okay. I'm missing the 13-year-old. But I, you know, what you're saying about incorporating um, your daily life into your studio practice and vice versa is, I feel like uh, I had to get, I got a separate studio. Um and I felt like I needed that space. And you clearly have a separate workspace from your home. Um, but I think one thing that you – so you, you collaborate with your husband, which is very interesting to me. And you mentioned him being really an equal partner in all the – everything, the art, the parenting, you know. And I think that's super important. You know, you just met my husband. He's fully – he maybe does more than half of the child rearing (laughs) in our house because he has to support me. And, you know, he realizes that art is this extra thing that takes a lot of time and he is fully on board and supportive. So I feel like in that sense, I'm really lucky 
And it's the whole reason that I'm able to do this because there were a lot of expectations. This is my second husband, by the way. And the first one, you know, <laughs> the, the expectations I felt when I was a young woman and I got married at 22 were still, you will raise the family and you will be in the house. Um, whereas that's not how it's working out in my life, you know. But, in order, but a lot of women still are doing that you know, getting married very young. My students in Dahlonega are getting married, like, right out of school. I am, um, I never thought I would get married until it was actually happening. <laughs> I was never, like, the kind of person who really wanted to get married. But, um, and my husband, Curtis, was, like, we were, like, partners almost, like, right after we met. You know, just kind of in everything. Something about us meshes really well, conceptually, and like emotionally and physically and like all of that that stuff, <laughs> and so I guess just thinking about um, and I, I sometimes like I like to think about like the whole our whole lived lives is like performative and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Maybe it helps me get through the day. I, I'm not quite sure, but um, I think so. When I was doing my art history masters, we had to do you know a thesis, and I had just finished my MFA thesis because again I had like gone straight through, which was 50 pages, but you get to have a few more images in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't really have to, you don't have to write as scholastically uh, as you do for an MA dissertation or a thesis, a dissertation, that, that's beyond me. But I focused on gender and collaborative couples. So looking at like Marina Abramovic and Ulai, looking at Christo and Jean-Claude, looking at Yoko Ono and John Lennon and dissecting their whole um, relationships and looking at how gender they navigated gender through their works and through their personal lives super interesting i would love to read this you should definitely read it i'm not the best writer um but and i kind of it was a long hard summer writing that (laughs) but one summer only huh that's not bad i had to i have to get things through like really fast (laughs) so uh, my like thesis, anyways, it's it's an okay paper, but I think the idea that I was exploring is mm-hmm. is really fascinating. And there were these like really uh, thinking about these like heavily fem- feminist women who are like even if they're not making work that's feminist, whatever, like they're they're doing something that's atypical. They're doing like less than fifty percent of the housework, and they're saying that they're artists, and they're like denying like having family, at like not having children, and that kind of thing. Things that are um, and like trying to get like theirs get what's theirs um, and it was, it's really fascinating thinking about like analyzing the relationships and how that all worked yeah like John Lennon did most of the, the rearing of Sean Lennon right um, and Christo and Jean-Claude like she wasn't even she didn't, she didn't even listed on the works until like what 1995 or something right it's escaping me because it was not as popular but now she's like retroactively attributed to all of the works mm-hmm. so just thinking about how they kind of operate. And so that's always in my head. Uh, and my mom once told me that like women have to do 51, like the women like have to be, do at least 51% of like all the household stuff that like they're, that's like their job. Like they always have to just do a little bit, even if it's like one percentage more. And I was like, no, no. Or that like, I have to like let my husband or my partner, like the man in the house have like a, a little, even that one percentage more say and I was like, that's just preposterous. Like, right. no, I want the most say. Or I want to. And, it, I mean, it can get complicated. <laughs> or it's a struggle. I mean, it's a power struggle. I think about Klaus uh, Oldenburg because of the. And Kuji. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, you know, I'm, because he did fiber art, 
and but she did all of the sewing on it. I think is the. Do you know? The yeah, I'm familiar with that. her. I don't know that much about it though. But you know, it's the same situation with Christo, where he got all of the credit in the beginning. I think, or you know, I never had heard of her um, when I first started hearing about his work. So. I don't know. I don't have that relationship. I think it's really interesting that you have that relationship with your partner. I don't think I could manage that, that kind of competitiveness that comes with art. I mean, how you feel like you guys are making things together. So the competitiveness is kind of eclipsed by that. Well, we have separate practices as well, you know, so we both maintain our individual works and then we collaborate, you know, a couple times a year on bigger projects on works that seem to really like pull from his his practice and my practice. And what is his practice? Center? So he's uh, he's traditionally painting, um, but he does a lot of sculpture as well. He, you know, really like whatever medium fits the message. We do a lot of installation works together. And I saw art. you just installed something we in Athens. We just installed the glass cube in Athens, which was um, it was it's amazing. We're so excited about it. But we have like the same difficulties in you and I mean, we're installing this really amazing project that we got along really well. But when you're but then we're arguing, you know, of course, like inside this glass cube, like yelling at each other, like whose idea, like who's doing it better. So, um, but you just have to like kind of like take that with, you know, that's how it is. It's better to be arguing over a collaborative installation when like your kids are with their grandparents than like being at home, like arguing over who's doing the dishes. Right. <laughs> It, you know, it, it definitely is better. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. So you are still carrying that kind of power struggle into the work. Yeah, and but not necessarily. Like, we're both very. I don't know. We it's like it's push and pull. Right. But I think in competitiveness, like if if something happens, we're, we're always happy for each other. But you know, if he's to get, get something that's like, a, we I talked about this like a residency I applied for, and he wants to fight. I'm like. No, it's going to break my heart if you get it, you know? And then I'm like, okay, but do it, but I'm going to kind of be jealous of you. Or maybe really jealous of you. I'm going to be mad at you for like a whole week. Yeah. Like even though you deserve it and that's really unfair. And, you know, kind of vice versa. So, but I don't, it, it's like that with friends too. When yeah. Like our friends in a really great show, I'm like, oh, so jealous of you. But I'm really happy for you. But yeah. But I, dang it. <laughs> you, anybody who says they're not jealous of other people that are having great shows, I mean, they're just totally bullshit yeah you know I think that gender and race need to be taught more in the core curriculum right I mean this idea of like black history month or women's history month is like totally bullshit that's what I'm saying like how did I a person who's super interested in this and it's central to my work get out of grad school without having to take a single course that addresses this kind of stuff yeah you can you don't have to I mean you have to do algebra and every, right no offense but like <laughs> like we have calculators like we're not you're either good at it or you're not you know? <laughs> yeah but like learning history and like, so like so like the history of like our social lives is so important and I mean of course like feminism is even though a lot of my practice is from it it's right like it's hugely problematic and when like I teach art history right now at Georgia State and like teaching the chronology of like art history is like a hundred percent white men and ten percent females and 0.5 percent like black men and black women point no for like but black women really and this we're looking at like the last 10 years right and you know not even to get into like issues of like like transgenders and like lgbt or queering or anything like that and so 
but you learn about world history, but no one ever says like, oh, but there's no women in world history right. and that kind of thing. So like, it, you have to tear down everything that's been done before then and rewrite all of this <clears throat> history. It's super problematic as a teacher, you know, and it's also when you start tearing down, it gets really complicated and complex. And like, it's so easy to teach the history of art from the white male, you know, this is the formalist way and this is this whole modernism came down through European, you know, culture. It's very easy and very linear to teach that. But when you start, because I'm trying to make an effort to be more inclusive in my teaching and it gets very difficult because there's not just a couple of touchstones anymore. There's all these directions that you can go out in. You know? Yeah, you've got to get outside of the books. You've got yeah. to, I mean, you really have to put in the work and you have to always kind of articulate what's missing, what we're learning, but what we're missing. Uh, and that's something I've tried to do. I think that this might be a good segue into talking about the upcoming show, but yes. um, I, I was teaching my students about Judy Chicago's work and her collaborative uh, woman house is like a touchstone for the Athica exhibition, mm -hmm. but looking at her dinner party um, work, which is the table, right. like the triangular table with all of these important women from history, she was inspired, maybe not directly by this moment, but this moment really influenced her practice when she was in the 1950s and taking a class on world history, her professor said, her white male professor said, um, the last day of class will have a special lecture about women in world history. And until then, I, like, I don't think they covered it. And then on the last day of class, he said, um, here's the lecture on women in our history, or women in history. There are no women in world history. Women have contributed nothing to world history. Oh, my God. That's the end. <laughs> Does that not like, sound crazy? Yeah. I'm, like, all fired up when I'm teaching online class. I'm just like, can you believe that? And um, I was just like, oh, my goodness. Um, like, and what year is this? This, this is in is the like, 1950s. Okay. And I'm probably, you know, I think I, I might have like a loose retelling right. of it. Um, but I, I just said that was like kind of incredible. Like, not only, like, that's so antagonistic too. It's kind but of like, do, antagonism. but maybe it's like, do something. I don't know, like, thinking about maybe a different way of looking at it, not like, maybe it's like your call to action, which it was for her. Right. Um, well. And like, and then this idea of like Woman House, um, which Judy Chicago and Miriam Shapiro organized like outside of Cal Arts in the 1970s. Um, I always get my dates wrong, you know, which was this house, this abandoned house, or they whatever it wasn't abandoned, where they turned it into like a performance installation, like from the inside out. Um, and it's definitely like confrontational. And there's problematics. Apparently, like all of the women fought, and they were saying like yes. it's just like. I can't, like women fighting all the time. It's the women, and so there's definitely some like contradictory. Just but just looking at the idea of like a woman house is kind of interesting, especially because they had to make the house from inside out. They had to repair it. They right. learned like they were trained like the basic carpentry skills and like electrical wiring. Right. That's really fascinating. Alongside of um, creating these these installation pieces, that they were getting education. Um, they were making a home, but not the homemaker, you right. know, um, because this common perception that like, like men make a home, like make the house, they make the structure, right. but women make the home. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, and a lot of my curatorial projects, when I get to have like total freedom, um, kind of like, they're definitely, they pull from like things I'm interested in as an artist as well. 
like my collaborative or my curatorial and my artistic and my collaborative practice, I feel like they all work hand in hand. You know, there's different aspects of the same ideas that are going through my head. So this like idea of domesticity and nostalgia and sentimentality, how that translates into other artists working with concepts of the home um, and these like subtleties and, and making work that maybe is sentimental but isn't inherently sentimental or maybe it can be looked at a couple ways. Um, thinking about defining a house and not necessarily making it. A few of those things, those have been in my mind for a really long time. And that's where this show in Athens that's going to be at Athica is going into that territory. Yes. And so how did you pick these artists? You say you keep a running list on your iPhone. Were they in the running list? Or they were. Seen their work? I, I'm a big fan of um, working with artists that I know, mm-hmm. um, where I've really seen their practice like over at least a couple of years. Right. Um, but also like meeting, like pulling in new artists. Um just trying to keep it like fresh and fun. It's like a dinner party. You don't like sit next to your partner. You sit next to someone new, but you sit on the other side, someone you know well, kind of like in like across the table. So, uh, and it's my curating is always like trying to create conversations like between all the works that can expand, not just this is interesting, but this is interesting. Like, um, like trying to figure out how they work together. I mean, as any curator would, right? Right. And Athica is a great space. I this is like bucket list. Like at least like I I love Athica. I've mm-hmm. always wanted to show there, and they're so receptive. And they're it's female run, mm-hmm. uh, woman run, and this is an all woman show. But it's not about that, you know. Um, I mean, it is and it isn't. But the term domestic structures can refer like. Uh, refer to like inside the house like the home or the way that a home is run and organized but also like thinking about it as a platform for thinking about how we look at women on a social and political level like in the United States or globally um, like thinking about the domestic like if you look up the word the phrase domestic structure it's going to talk about domestic structure in the United States versus the international structure of other countries right and I really think that like maybe the home is the start like the seed and then everything everything socially like and politically expands from that agreed Um, and how you know and I don't try to answer any questions when I curate it's mostly about like raising more questions Mm -hmm. I don't have the answers to anything um but these artists uh in Kyung Chun uh she's had this blue house structure it's neon that I've been obsessed with for years and I was like how am I going to, what am I going to do when I show this? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like, I need to show this. Is it 3D? Yes, yeah, so you can walk in and under it. Uh, and it functions as a house and as, like, a gateway. Uh, and I always, I think about kind of this idea of, like, a woman being carried over the threshold of her home after she's married. And then, like, like walking through this neon gate where it's not a house, but it's a gate. And a home being this portal. So I think it's a great kind of. Piece. And it's a neon house, and it's just the framework, mm-hmm. right? It's it's actually just the like maybe the traditionally male masculine aspect of making the home because there's not any interior going on. It's all right. like just concept- the structure. Yeah, it's conce- conceptual space maybe. So that's a good example. I mean, so that piece, like, I've been wanting to show it for a while, but I never had the right place or the right concept. And um, then finally, just it just started getting put together. I always say that. I have things on the back burner that they're like percolating and you know it's just like when you're driving or when you're like can't go to sleep and it just starts getting put together in your head 
And I don't know, it just it kind of felt like got put together kind of seamlessly. Looking at different artists that I'd gone to grad school with or I've worked with the last few years who work explores like these notions of the home or house. And when does that show open? It opens May 6th. Okay. Um, the reception six to nine, so it's a Saturday. It's graduation weekend. Okay. Apparently. So we'll have a really good time after also. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can walk to Attica, so Perfect. I can make it there. Um, and are there, and you have a show up at the Indigo in Athens also, you and Curtis. Yes. The, the installation Rainbow Cube, which okay. will be up through Halloween. Oh, good. So there's a long time to see that. Um, and any other shows that you have or that you're curating that I should know about? That, so I've told myself I'm not curating for the rest of the year. Okay. I'm focusing on my work. Um, and I've got a few kind of projects that are coming up that I'm like nailing all the logistics down, but you should see me doing some interesting kind of installation projects uh, this summer in a few cool venues in Atlanta. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it was great talking with you, Candace. Thank you so um, much. Thank you for having me in your studio. Okay. So awesome. Candace is the best and I love getting to introduce you guys to her and her work. So now is the time for you Atlanta folks to come to Athens and check out Candace's personal invasion of our little college town that's happening. She and Curtis Ames have their Rainbow Cube site-specific installation at the Hotel Indigo at the Glass Cube art space there. And the domestic structure show that Candace curated is opening at the Athens Institute for Contemporary Art, also known as Athica, on May 6th. So y'all Atlanta people need to get over and check that out. That show is Athens and Atlanta Artist. And speaking of Athens and Atlanta and openings, I did promise that I would talk to you about the Mint opening. That's the M4 Second Severn Crossing I did talk to the curator, but I did not ask her what that meant. I looked it up, and, like, it's some kind of British river. I'm sorry, I don't know what it is. I feel I feel ignorant, but maybe I'll, I should look that up. Um, so we did go to that opening at the Hathaway. Um, that was at the end of our day. After going to Candace's studio, we had lunch at a super fancy pedestrian mall on the west side, place called Star Provisions that Candace recommended. Bennett got some new glasses at Warby Parker, and I decided I was out of my shopping league in this fancy mall when I found a shirt that I liked, and it was $375. So yeah. Um, and then we also went to the High and the Atlanta Contemporary, where I met their director, who was totally awesome for the first time, Veronica Kasenich, I'm going to say. I'm not sure how you pronounce your last name. It's free to go to the Contemporary now, so there's no excuse. It's over on the west side behind Georgia Tech, and there's some really interesting work up right now. I like the Paul Anthony Smith prints. that He had these, um, I think they're inkjet prints, that he has poked through them with a ceramic tool. And this is a technique called picotage that the the picked out areas create a little pattern of, of white that's like the puffed up paper where it's been picked at on the surface. Anyway, um, it was great to talk with Veronica. She was she managed to get me to donate money by being such an engaging chatter. So she's good, y'all. Watch out. And after that, 
We went to Bar Taco, had some mojitos, and then finally made it to the Met opening. So as I mentioned, I, I met the curator, Victoria Camblin, and I met a lot of the artists and talked to a lot of the people from Mint who were all awesome. Um, I just, I want to go into so much detail because so many things happened. I learned so much that night from so many of the people that I talked to, but there's really not enough time in this episode to go there. I'm thinking what I'll do is a couple of the women that I met, I'm going to get them on the podcast in the future so we can get more into depth with uh, their work and what's going on with them. But let's talk a little bit about one of the artists I met, um, Keith Jones. I loved his work. It was also, I loved meeting him. I think his work was like a direct reflection of his personality. He was super fun to talk to. He literally had a sunshine coming out of his head. He was wearing a giant I think it was cardboard sun that he had decorated um, for Earth Day and was just beautiful. I'm looking at his Instagram page right now. He calls himself artist, sissy man, the next Madonna. I don't think that's an exaggeration, you guys. He's got a combination of video and drawing in the show that really resonated with me. Um, They're serious but funny at the same time. Like his video, I literally laughed out loud multiple times while I was watching it. Um, And I think I'm one of those people like Elizabeth Murray. When I see something that makes me laugh, then I know it's really working. Um, And he's a really young dude. I didn't ask him how young he was, or if I did, I can't remember. But that's exciting to me because I can't wait to see where he's going to take us with his work. So anyway, we got to sign off. This is getting long. Um, if there's some links up on my website, vivianladell.com slash peachy keen. If you want more info on some of the stuff that we've talked about, I also have a Patreon page if you'd like to support the podcast. But I hear one of the best ways to support a new podcast is to write a review of it. Uh, I don't know, give some stars or something on iTunes. So you've made it this long into the podcast. Maybe that's a good sign. And um, if you want to let others know what they're going to hear when they stay tuned for this thing, um, do me a favor and do me a solid, as they say, and, and put a review on iTunes. All right. Until next time, guys, I hope your days are peachy keen.